Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Louis Leo, a partner and business lawyer with Foley and Lardner, based in the firm's Silicon Valley office. Louis focuses his practice on advising entrepreneurs and their management teams, investors, and financial advisors at all stages of growth from garage to global. Prior to joining Foley, Louis was the founder of a Silicon Valley boutique law firm called L2 Council. He previously served as both the co-managing partner and co-chair of the emerging growth and venture capital practice of a global law firm in Silicon Valley. In this podcast, we talk about the idea of compromised independent directors, boardroom decision-making, particularly on M&A, downrounds and recaps, and dual-class share structures, including founder control and other venture terms. We also address ESG, the current state of VC in Silicon Valley, and the challenges and opportunities of the crypto industry. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Louis, it is so good to see you and to have you in the Boardroom Governance Podcast to talk about corporate governance, to talk about Silicon Valley, about startups and venture capital. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, join us today and talk about all these issues. Well, as you know, Evan, I am a fan. I listen to the podcast. So what an honor to be with you today. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so if you listen to the podcast, you know that the first part is always about the guest. Let's talk about you, about your professional career. Let's start from the basic question, where you're born, where you grew up, and we'll go all the way until your current role at Foley. Uh, awesome. Thank you. Well, um, like many of my clients, uh, I am the product of uh, founders, technical founders coming from overseas. My father was a Fulbright scholar in the late 60s and came to do his PhD thesis at Berkeley. And so he and my mother raised my brothers and I in uh, in the East Bay, uh, in the in the environs of the University of Cal Berkeley. And uh, when I was seven years old, Evan, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, and I love what I do. Wow. Uh, and I think that's one of uh, the passions that I bring to the table. Uh, a little bit about me, Evan. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. Interesting thinking about a small seven-year-old Louis already knowing that he wanted to be a, a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 let's move forward. So tell us, how did you get started in your uh, professional career and uh, your different roles in different firms? I know you've moved from the U.S. to Europe and back to Silicon Valley. So uh, I, I went to Georgetown University, and uh, as a as an undergraduate student there, uh, I went and got a job at Sherman and Sterling, a large Wall Street firm with a Washington D.C. office, and we were representing the government of Mexico in the passage of the NAFTA uh, negotiation passage. And at that time, uh, it was all about how do we get this through Congress. Uh, somebody found out I had a, a French passport. And uh, a couple of years later, they shipped me off to uh, Paris uh, to help them uh, help French multinational companies access the U.S. capital markets by listing on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. And so I had a a great time for uh, 10 years going back and forth from the East Coast to to Europe, uh, working with those companies. And then I moved home to the Silicon Valley in 2005, uh, Evan, and 
uh, as time has progressed, I've followed uh, the ups and downs and what's hot and what becomes not uh, in the economy. And and uh, I've had a great time and I love what I do. Okay. And let's talk about your current role and your current firm and, and maybe we'll start there. And then from there, we'll move into what's happening here in Silicon Valley. Sure. Um, I joined Foley and Lardner with a team of 12 other lawyers, and we've now grown to 45 lawyers uh, at Foley and Lardner in early uh, 2021. And we aim to serve uh, technology, life sciences, clean energy, and other innovation businesses from garage to global. And so we believe that you need to be there at the earliest moments of, of a company to be as effective as you can all the way through its life cycle to really know it inside and out, both the business and the customers and the people. So we're serving a cohort of about 350 companies, uh, investors, and funds at, at all stages of growth. And uh, obviously the story of 2021 uh, was this giant, epic, historic boom in venture capital and mm -hmm. private equity fundraising and deployment of funds. And we've seen in 2022, what I'll say is an, a generational adjustment uh, to the both the equity and the debt markets, which has been trickling its way uh, from the public markets to the private markets, uh, and eventually down to the earliest stages as the year has gone on. And as we record this in September of 2022, uh, we're starting to see an adjustment that began in January in, into the earliest stages of early stage funding. Okay. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot to dig into what you just said. We'll go through a lot of these trends and, and implications for boards of directors. But let me start with one question. Recently, I wrote a post in my newsletter called Compromise Independent Directors. And I got a very quick email from you in reaction to it. The premise of the article, let me set it up so we can talk about it. There is a case in Delaware that involved activist investors and in this case, the Delaware court decided, or at least put a big question mark on a couple of the directors of the company that felt that were compromised in a sense with the activist investors that nominated them. And the case is interesting because it not only questions past benefits that directors may have received, but also questions future rewards that they may receive. And in this case, they said, look, because these activists has placed these directors in other companies and other deals, they have an interest to side with him in the future. And that's a very interesting side of things because this same court, the same judge, wrote the Trados decision uh, on venture capital, questioning as well independent directors in venture-backed companies. And there is questions uh, around web of interrelationships around owingness that these directors may have, about being beholden to some of the controlling shareholders, about structural bias, about a closely knit community, repeat player relationships, symbiotic relationships. And all of this is really important for directors to understand. And why do you have a strong reaction to this piece and to this line of court decisions? That's a great question, Evan. And whenever I hear the words independent director, and I, I put air quotes uh, under the words, uh, around the words independent, uh, my ears perk up. And in my practice, representing uh, private companies from uh, the very earliest stages all the way through, um, at, at various moments in time, I get the question, should I appoint an independent director 
or I suggest uh, that we should uh, obtain a vote of, of non-interested directors uh, or in, independent directors. And uh, every everyone in Silicon Valley uh, and San Francisco knows everyone else. And uh, to, to say that each uh, person is independent, uh, as, as Judge Lester writes, is um, such a deep uh, analysis uh, that I don't think you can ever get to uh, the right answer. And so what do people do in real life, Evan? And I think that really was w- what was sparking my reaction. Uh, as I often read these cases uh, from the ivory tower or the bench, uh, where what has been done in practice is is questioned because of some, you know, what I'll call um, p- uh, prudent uh, uh, morals, uh, or, or, or is it is it really independent? And um, my advice is always that um, people are only as independent as, as they feel at the time, and, and that's going to change. And, and so it provokes a strong reaction because I don't know that anyone is independent. And so when somebody comes to me and says, well, I really think that we should have an independent, I say to them, do you really want somebody who's independent? And how are you going to feel when they always vote with the venture firm because they want to get appointed to the next uh, company's uh, board and the next one and the next one? Uh, and how are you going to feel later on down the line if they're if they're questioning uh, what you're doing? And, and so I think that it's a it's a little bit of a farce. And so what each director needs to do is say what their interests are in the matter. Uh, and disclose them. And if they're large enough, everybody can say, you know, we really think you shouldn't be voting here. And independence is really a question of leverage. Um, And the leverage that any person has at in any given moment in time is governed by so many things that that are known and unknowable. What I find interesting in in some of these cases is the idea of of the promise of future gains. In other words, is somebody never independent because they're always going to feel beholden uh, to somebody because of whatever future um, uh, that somebody can give back to them? And and again, as long as everyone's clear, you know, my business is being an independent director, and and therefore everyone knows that I, that's my business. Um, you know, ha- have you disclosed enough? Does that mean that your your vote's clear at that time? Interestingly, because uh, in Silicon Valley, most companies, most venture-backed companies don't have so many independent directors, uh, what ends up happening is that there is a a review of these cases. They don't benefit from a business judgment rule. And therefore, in a scenario like we live in today, where you have many down rounds, when you have a down cycle economy, and maybe sales are happening, maybe down rounds are happening, now the scrutiny over these so-called independent directors is going to be higher. And I think we're going to see more of this. And this question is going to keep coming up and up. So let me ask you, what do you think about this down round scenario? And what is your view as a deal lawyer in terms of how it's going? And do you see more of these sales or down rounds happening? Well, people ask me all the time how decisions really get made. And I think that uh, in in every board I I have ever worked in, there has been a a desire uh, to make decisions by consensus. 
So I think uh, uh, management teams would do well to speak to their directors, all of them, uh, whatever their class, whoever they represent, before a board meeting, prep them, explain to them what's going on, uh, explain to them kind of the sense of the discussions amongst the other directors and try and drive consensus. So I would say in, in the vast, vast majority of cases, uh, boards are well prepped and they take decisions uh, on a consensus basis. And those areas of, of sensitivity where people would be tempted to vote different ways or what should be explored before the board meeting actually occurs. And, and in the down round scenario, um, here, here's, here's how it lays out. You know, series seed investor has invested at $1 a share. Series A investor has invested at $2 a share. Series B investor has invested in 2021 at $10 a share. And lo and behold, that money is all gone. And now we're looking to raise money at one, two, five, or six. Now, uh, the series seed A and B Sorry, they're they're really happy uh, to to take another round at five. It's that Series C guy who came in at ten, uh, who is who is um, going to have to mark down to market the value of their asset at that point. Who's who's and and have to tell her limited partners that that she has in, in some senses lost them money on paper. Uh, that's that's uh, diametrically or, or positionally opposed to to that down round, and so. You know, how can you drive a consensus as to what's the best thing for the company uh, at that time? And if you're an independent director, in other words, you don't have a, st uh, a horse in the in the race, whether because you're not an A, B or C. Uh, but one of these directors is, is somebody that helps you get on other boards. Um, you know, how, how do you how do you handle that situation? And I and I think, you know, in, in the situations that I see, uh, the independent is going to say, hey, you know, I, I serve on other boards, as everybody knows, with, you know, the A, the B or the C. Um, so, you know, everybody knows that, but I still have my view and this is what I think. I don't think that's a conflicted vote, um, and I, I don't think reasonable people do. So in, in real life, uh, Evan, I think people are really focused on how can I do the best for uh, the, the venture that I'm involved with and what's the right decision. And and when you talk about uh, down rounds, um, you know, that, that's really what I think about is what is my price point um, uh, uh, at, at below which I suffer pain? And am I willing to suffer pain uh, to do what's uh, best for the company. And, and um, right now we're dealing with those situations um, with, with increasing frequency as, as we, we speak. We're, we're just commencing, finishing the third quarter of 2022 uh, as this uh, podcast is recorded. Yeah, and let me make an observation. So obviously we've gone through a bull market in the last 10, 12 years and venture terms have been very founder friendly, particularly in Silicon Valley. And you know everybody was winning. So the investors were happy, the founders were happy, the employees were happy. Now we're in this situation where these terms are changing, right? And why don't you tell us in your experience how you've seen these terms change now that maybe people are not going to give perhaps dual class shares or people going to do some uh, higher liquidation preferences. How do you see the tables turning in the deal making and, and how that will impact kind of startups as they move forward in this environment? Uh, great question. Somewhere in, in, in the 2004 timeframe, uh, Sergey and Larry uh, went to take Google public and uh, they thought about you know, what, what life was going to be like as a public company. And they decided that they didn't trust 
the the public markets and and the the future shareholders they would they would obtain uh, to to really be stewards of the long term best interests of of Google. And so they split the stock into two classes, where there would be a high voting uh, class A common stock, which they would hold as the founders, and then uh, there would be a low voting class B common stock, which everybody else would would get, whether it was the public that they were selling shares to or or employees who were getting shares from from their equity. And this was repeated in Facebook while it was a private company. And then it became a fad at the beginning of the last decade, the 2010 timeframe. And you saw it uh, more and more. And I think something like 40% of companies that go public in the last five years um, you know, have had this, this, this structure. And so then as new companies were getting formed, the question is, should we put this dual class of structure in place now? Or is the appropriate time just before we go public? And um, founders who were doing their second or third companies remembered all of the times that they were almost fired uh, by their board, or they thought they were going to get fired. And they thought to themselves, you know, we should have this super class of voting stock now um, so that there's never a question that I, the founder, am in charge. And in, in, in all of these scenarios, there have been questions about whether the person who has the super voting class of common, it, when they take decisions, whether they're in the best interest of themselves or really they're in the best interest of everyone. Um, and, and when somebody is making those decisions as a director, you know, they, they need to be using their fiduciary hat and doing what's in the best interests of all holders, including the low voting commons. So, so now what do we see in, in the pendulum? So, um, I think we used to say, if you're a repeat founder, uh, and you've already raised money before and you've exited, absolutely no problem. You can have dual class, uh, super voting stock right away at formation and, and, and all the way through. Um, but otherwise you should not put in super voting stock unless and until you've created something awesome and you're looking to, to go public. And so that was kind of the rule of thumb. And, you know, people ask me today as we form new entities, you know, has that changed? Um, I don't think venture capital investors think that the dual class of common uh, is, is really that important. Uh, what they negotiate for are a, a series of protective provisions uh, that require their vote uh, for a specific action to happen. And it's a long laundry list of maybe 15 things. And, and really, that's what they're focused on. So I, I continue to think that um, super voting stock really is, is a leverage point. Um, uh, if you have it and a board wants to fire you, they're still going to fire you. Uh, maybe you'll, you'll get them to give you a bigger, a better package on your way out. Uh, but, but money is the ultimate leverage point. And if you need money, it doesn't matter what, what controls you have. The person who you need money from is going to tell you the controls they're going to take. Um, and, and so the pendulum right now is, is, um, I, I would say it's more focused on, um, how do investors get their money back? Um, so their capital and their return. And so I'm not seeing so much friction right now, Evan, on the, the super voting stock or the, the, the protective provisions. Where I'm seeing friction is investors saying, not only do I want my money back, but if you want me to pay this valuation, I need to be sure I'm, I'm getting my money back plus a return. So I want a 2x liquidation preference. And then I want to participate with you, the common on top. Um, so because I think this valuation is really high. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of that. And, and then where I'm seeing votes come in is um, uh, if you want to raise capital again, 
Um, if you do it at a price that's less than 2x the price I paid, I want a blocking veto on that. Um, or if you want to sell the company at less than, than my price, I want a blocking veto on that. Now, again, if you don't want to put money again later um, and you know, you're just trying to get your money back and, and you're, you're going to vote in favor. Uh, if you think the company is doing great and, and the price isn't good enough, then, then might, maybe you'd vote no. So that's kind of the, the pull and push that I'm seeing uh, today, which is you know, September 29th, 2022. Mm. So these structured deals seem very investor friendly and, and having 2x, 3x liquidation preferences and having participation rights, which is something, right, that existed 10, 15 years ago was very common. And, and what you're saying is in the control side, it works uh, as long as you're performing and you don't need anybody else's money. And that's also interesting in that you don't see that much of a friction. Let me ask you a separate question. Imagine you're advising a director, an independent director, somebody who has been invited to a high-flying startup, who has a CEO, who has got this founder control, this very strong personality, maybe doesn't listen to anybody else, right? How do you deal with an independent director in that situation? Is that a good place to be? And, you know, as you are entering a company, have you seen or had an experience with that kind of situation? Um, so, you know, what I, what I often advise um, directors who are, who are considering joining on boards uh, and as well as uh, founders and investors who are looking for an independent director is um, really what is the what is the the role that's lacking on the board? And sometimes what we need is somebody to really um, dig deeply into the financial function of the company and supervise it and be a uh, a support to the CFO as a company looks to go public. Uh, and so that person might be the future audit committee chair. Uh, sometimes it's somebody to help the the other board members. Um, really be a, a, a buffer between them and the CEO about compensation um, because, you know, you, you're, you really need that CEO to continue to lead and be motivated. And at the same time, you know, you can't let them dictate their own compensation. And so having an independent, uh, you know, might be a, a good, um, a good thing at that point. Um, if you're looking to join a board, I, I think the question is, is what influence am I going to have? Um, what am I going to be able to do? Um, and, and that's positive. Uh, how can I help create, uh, you know, positive momentum or, or uh, achievement for this company? And, and that's really um, the question. And, and, and in the end, that's a relationship and it's a position. Um, and, and so there has to be um, the ability uh, to, to interact with the CEO uh, and, and have a relationship. And it, it isn't necessarily a power relationship as it is a human relationship where you're able to speak to them and they listen and you have some influence, whatever that may be. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And it reminds me, unfortunately, of the Theranos case where you did have an early director who picked up on a few things that seemed fishy, went asking to Elizabeth Holmes for some more information. He didn't get it. He went to the chair of the company and uh, didn't get it, and eventually got asked by the chair and Elizabeth Holmes to resign his role, right? So it's it's really hard, and this is something I advise as well, people who wanna join boards, is you gotta be very careful in what situation you're you're into. And, and governance is interesting because excesses can come either from super founders that are super empowered, or from investors as well, who can be kind of, 
and machination in the boardroom, right? So it's not a one-size-fits-all. And, and so that's what's interesting with being a director. And I think what you're hinting as is it's really important, the relationships that you have, not only inside the boardroom, but outside of the boardroom. It, it all happens outside of the boardroom. And it's absolutely about relationships. And that's a, that's a perfect summary. Okay. Here's another topic which has been going on in on governance circles now for, for quite a while, which is the new mantra of ESG. Uh, this is the environmental social governance. Uh, we are seeing today a pushback. And now there's an anti-ESG movement, not only driven by politics, because a lot of it, unfortunately, is political. Uh, some states like Texas or Florida are pushing hard back and saying that their pension funds should not put their money with BlackRock or other large institutional investors who are promoting ESG mandates. But also some very well-known entrepreneurs and investors from Silicon Valley. So let me ask you, how are you seeing the evolution of ESG both on public companies and private companies? And, you know, how do you think clients are perceiving this? And it is different buckets, right? We have the environmental bucket, we have the social bucket, and we have governance, which has always been, to me, it's always been kind of a strange melange of things. But uh, why don't you tell us your perception of ESG and, and how to think about it? Sure. Um, so I'm going to leave the politics to other people and tell you what I'm seeing. And at the earliest stages of companies, as soon as they get a term sheet from a venture capital fund, the term sheet is 99 times out of 100 going to now contain a phrase that says that the company will adopt an ESG policy. Uh, so the National Venture Capital Association uh, has include, has amended its form of term sheet uh, to include the requirement to have an ESG policy as well as an anti-harassment and discrimination policy to ensure that there is diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in companies. So I think that the venture capital industry has taken that very seriously and is is putting that into place in the earliest stages of a company's DNA. And whether or not you like that, it is happening. I think that some founders might have a, a very anti-ESG frame of mind and might avoid uh, or resist uh, the, the request of a venture capital firm to include that at their peril. I think uh, that it just isn't the most important issue that an investor and a founder team or CEO is, is concerned about when they're negotiating a financing. And so that's why, irrespective of what people's personal political views are, um, I see this term being adopted and I see the policies being adopted. Now, are they being implemented? That remains to be seen. I think the answer is probably, probably it's a check the box exercise. There is a policy that's put up on a company's intranet. Um, how do they actually implement it? In fact, I think that's a, that's, that remains to be seen. Um, as companies approach an exit, where they think they may go out uh, and, and seek a, a listing on, on a national securities exchange to become public, I think that this becomes, uh, this gets a lot of focus uh, and attention as there's a long list of of items that companies look at to, to get ready to go public, that their pre-IPO readiness program. And, and I think that um, there, are, there are a lot of advisors around the table that are trying to reduce risk. And if you're thinking about going out on, and doing a roadshow and, and putting yourself under that kind of scrutiny, really the last thing you want to do is stick out and be different. 
and have to explain something unrelated to the likely success of your business. And so the, in the vast majority of cases, I see companies taking ESG very seriously and adopting it and presenting themselves to the market as socially responsible as possible. Finally, for companies that are public, we are seeing all of our public company clients looking to get ready to implement uh, new policies in response to proposed rulemaking that's come out of the SEC. Um, again, irrespective of their their personal political views, nobody wants a story about them in the newspaper that's that's unflattering. And so I, I do think that there is a pressure um, that is being brought to bear that uh, on companies at all stages of growth to become more socially responsible with ESG policies as well as anti-discrimination and, and harassment uh, policies and diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. Not saying that I, I can opine at their effectiveness or or whether the, the spirit of these rules is being implemented uh, in fact, but I, I do think that it's undisputable and undeniable that this movement is is very strong. Yeah, now that's really interesting that all companies that are getting term sheets today have ESG being moved into their terms. Another thing that brought my attention here is some companies have said, look, and, and, and not to bring politics again into the table, but basically some CEOs have said, well, we don't want to discuss politics anymore. We are a mission-driven company. There is a the very famous case of Coinbase and other companies like Kraken, who their CEO actually just stepped down. But this is something that is interesting because the viewpoint here is changing in terms of what is the right approach from the CEO and what should be the right approach from the board. And there are different viewpoints uh, in terms of how should management deal with these issues that are getting polarized because these debates are not easy and take take a lot of time. Um Irrespective of the politics, which I try and stay away from, I, I think that the the single largest pressure that exists for CEOs as well as every investor around the table in the boardroom and even the independent director, although to a lesser extent, is the financial performance of a company. And I think where ESG is most successful is when it um, aligns itself uh, where the company succeeds in aligning the goals of ESG with the goals of financial performance. And, and that's where really there should not be any disagreement because what's in the financial, financial interest of the company, if it's also aligns with ESG, who can argue with that? Where I see the struggle are, are with um, old economy, carbon fuel burning resource companies where, you know, do, do, they, do they dig a new well uh, in an environmentally sensitive area, so that because the price of oil is so high now that they could they could make uh, a profit and and um, you know whether or not that is aligned with ESG or not, I, I actually think now comes under some debate as if you're um, a working class person in France or Germany uh, or England looking at the potential that your gas bill to heat your very cold, apartment uh in in at christmas time is or passover the winter is is going to be multiplying by 5x um you're that that's uh, that's a real concern so again staying out of the politics i think that uh esg most often in most cases aligns with financial performance and so it doesn't need to be 
subject of any kind of a debate. And but there are, of course, these circumstances where people disagree as to whether or not you should dig that dig that well um, uh, at the moment. Mm-hmm. Thinking about the current environment, what are any other issues that you think are important for directors to think about? We are potentially facing a recession. Different markets are going down. Crypto, I know that you, you've been dabbling on the crypto market as well, and that's the, the prices are, are really crashing. But any, any thoughts for directors that are listening in terms of what they should be looking out for in this environment? Uh, it, it's a it's a great question. Um, what I am hearing and seeing at every level of the market today is how do we adjust in the face of a different multiplier being applied to our revenues and an increased risk of failing to meet the financial targets that were set out. So up to now in 2022, um, what we've seen is the following um, companies continuing to perform, but their valuations dropping because the multiple of value applied to their revenues was simply changed by analogy to the public markets. But the, but the, but the operating performance of these companies continued to be the same. And so there was still great optimism despite uh, valuations dropping. And I would tell you that for uh, people like me who are the foot soldiers of the deal economy, uh, we've had just a busy, as busy of a 2022 as a 2021. Now, those of, of my brethren who focus on IPOs would beg to differ because there haven't been any, or those who became SPAC experts, there, there are very few of those uh, running around. Um, and so what I'm, I'm now hearing, and people I'm... Are, M&A is doing well, right? It's okay, not great. Um, but what, I, what I'm hearing now at the ground level, ground zero of, of what's happening next is... Uh, August was a very light month. Everybody went out and caught up on their vacations and sales um, did not close uh, at the same pace as was budgeted or expected or happened in last summer or especially the summer before when no one was traveling. And, and I think it's it's normal that everyone was traveling. That's explainable and nobody should get panicked. But if September, if, if the Q3 numbers get announced in October with a big miss, more than can be explained by, you know, healthy travel season this past summer. I think then we're going to see a potential uh, uh, further swinging of the pendulum uh, towards the the bears and away from the bulls. Um, uh, up to now, I've, I haven't seen any, any um, decrease in operating performance. You know, companies were building, buying software, hiring people. Um, and so you combine this potential... Uh, decrease in in operating performance with you know increases in interest rates with again further uh, depression on multiples and and that's where um, you know directors really need to be sensitive because you've got employees at all levels of the organization who are wondering are, are my stock options um, anything more than toilet paper at this point if they were priced last year uh, do we need to reprice those? Mm-hmm. Um, what is the financial stability of my uh, key customers and, and key suppliers? You know, what is the stability of my supply chain if I'm producing any kind of hardware? And uh, what what are customers going to do next quarter or the quarter after? Are they going to spend like they normally do or are they going to pull back? 
Um, and, and I think that in August, customers weren't pulling back. I really think people were on holiday. September, it's, I haven't heard yet any, anything about what one could say about it, but that's, that's what I'm seeing. So if you're a director, um, your real fiduciary duty is, is to have your ear to the ground um, and applying, you know, trying to understand how the changing circumstances of, of the world are going to be impacting the company that you're working with. You know, should you raise money or not? Um, what sort of instrument should you use if you're looking to raise money? Um, uh, traditionally, uh, directors don't like to, to issue equity because they think the price is too low. Um, well, is it going to, to decrease in value or is it going to increase in value? Um, should we be raising money at all uh, uh, is a question I get frequently. Um, and and I, I would, I'd like to end, Evan, with some good news, as I believe that there are more funds there, there's still more capital flowing through the markets than at any time in the history of the world. We still have a very um, accommodating uh, monetary policy, and we have a new generation of, of funds that are um, much more tailored to the stage of growth of the company and the industry vertical. It used to be that a, a venture capital firm would be generalists and relationship focused, and, and they would ac- invest across stages and across verticals. And, and that process of specialization really hit a new um, level in early 2022. And, and I'm seeing a lot of thematic funds that are focused exclusively on AI in early stage or late stage. And um, I think that um, the, the ability to raise capital, despite the, the valuations being challenged, has, has never been as strong. Yeah, no, that's uh, really interesting. And, and just before we move into the rapid fire questions, Crypto is a big question, and I know you you are um, uh, into the market. Do you? How do you see the evolution of the regulatory landscape there? And uh, of course, we could spend a lot of time. But what's your quick take on crypto? Uh, we just went through the merge last week, yep. And so that's a big big time for crypto. But what's your quick take on this? Um, so the um, we we saw a melting down of, of values in the digital asset space starting around March. And it, it kind of happened um, with, with three big drivers, I would say. Um, the first was simply a, an application of risk. And with, with equity market valuations dropping precipitously and the outlook for uh, interest rates um, on the rise, there was, I would say, a reallocation of, of assets away from digital and back into commodities and anything related to energy. So I think that was strike number one on the crypto uh, or the digital asset industry. Um, strike number two came when there was a run on uh, one of the stable coins. Uh, stable coins are designed to be uh, tokens mm-hmm. that have an absolutely specific, defined, exchangeable, convertible value that does not change. Um, and so uh, there, there was a there was a, a stablecoin which had a run on its uh, convertibility by the market, and it had to um, you know stand down, and and that really shocked the the confidence of investors. So that was strike number two, this run on a stable coin. Um, the third thing was we, we had um, a series of enforcement actions uh, from the SEC and uh, Chairman Gensler that were designed to really um, uh, send a message to the industry, both creators, uh, promoters, and investors, 
um, that you know the SEC has absolutely not decided whether or not a token is a security, and in fact, you know has has put more uh, doubt on that. And and most recently, there was a case of insider trading, a potential insider, alleged insider trading of tokens by uh, employees of Coinbase. And in the complaint uh, that the SEC brought against these employees, they alleged that the tokens that they were trading in were actually securities. And I think they could have brought uh, actions against these people without saying that they were securities. But having said they were securities has really struck fear into the hearts of um, uh, both uh, founders who are bringing new projects to market, but also the the ecosystem that makes the pipes and plumbing uh, for the market. So those are the three things that that I see as being still very much against the recovery of the crypto market. On the plus side, I think the merge um, is a is a real benefit, and and next year we're supposed to see the surge as as Ethereum becomes a less expensive uh, place to do business where. Um, transactions will be processed much more quickly and at a much lower uh, cost right now to process uh, an Ethereum transaction and, and a, a transaction on any other blockchain. Uh, you you may be paying what are called gas fees, um, which are essentially uh, fees by, by um, intermediaries in the market to validate the transaction. Um, so I think that the merge is, is a big positive event. The surge will be even more positive an event. Um, I think that uh, uh, the digital asset markets are here to stay. Uh, Bitcoin has become a ubiquitous uh, form of, of currency. It, it is the national currency now of El Salvador and, and, and uh, it, it is, is still um, very much being, being promoted by the, the richest man in the world uh, uh, who was on a podcast just uh, yesterday or was it the day before with, with uh, the former founder of Twitter. Uh, which I thought was interesting. So just the fact that Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk were doing a podcast together. I think the, if I were the Twitter lawyers, I'd, I'd be a little bit scared of that. Um, uh, and uh, so, I, I, and I think that, you know, that it still has the potential uh, to be a, a, an alternative to the unbanked, uh, to enable uh, international commerce of all kinds. And to, and it continues to be um, the, the thesis behind the web three, uh, economy that we're just starting to see come into play where people can transact with each other on a decentralized basis without any intermediary or, or control, um, which uh, I think is exciting and, and, and has a lot of upside for the world. And, and, and there are a lot of risks in that, uh, yeah. which, which remain to be seen. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about crypto. I think it's going to come back. I, I wouldn't sell anything. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I would like to see, uh, the SEC give us um, some thoughtful proposed rules rather than regulation by enforcement, which is what mm -hmm. we've been seeing, and, and and that the rules are are helpful and not designed to be um, a cold shower. Yeah, no, that's interesting, and it, it, there seems to be you know th there were some executive orders both from President Biden and Governor Newsom trying to make this uh, regulation easier and it's going to be a process. But let's switch to the rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? You know, I'm very passionate in my professional career as a lawyer. Um, and uh, my my wife would tell you that my hobbies are work, work, and work, which doesn't make me very interesting for these questions. Uh, but in, in the last few years, as I've accompanied 
my mother on her journey through uh, pancreatic cancer, I have um, somehow picked up a spiritual side. And so um, I, I read uh, The Pilgrimage by Paolo Coelho, which describes the voyage that uh, two men make from the Basque Mountains, the Pyrenees Mountains in, in France to uh, Santiago de Compostela and, and uh, all of the things that they learn along the way about themselves and, and the world. And uh, I really value um, opportunities to get out of my own head, uh, Evan, and to um, find places to think creatively. Um, you know, one of the things that's changed about my life in the last, you know, three years since the pandemic has been this constantly over scheduling of minutes um, on Zoom because it's it's so easy now to see somebody and have a meeting that before you know would be much more selective because it would have required you know somebody to get into a car or a plane and and spend a much more robust amount of time and now you know you can have all of these fifteen minute meetings. And so uh, I, I find that, you know, from eight to five, it's just chock-a-block. And I think most people are chock-a-block on, on Zoom or some other um, communication device. And I need to get out of my own head. And so uh, the, the value of dreaming uh, is something that I, I search for. Uh, and I find that that place between being awake and being asleep, right before I right as I'm waking up in the morning and right as I'm going to sleep has become, you know, very treasured time where I get out of my own head with, um, with, uh, thoughts like that. Okay. Well, that's good. Who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? You know, I, I feel so blessed, uh, at having had so many mentors. Um, there, uh, there was a professor I had at Georgetown that, that marked me and his name was father James Shaw, a Jesuit priest. And despite the fact that he had only uh, one functioning eye, um, he read more books than, than anyone uh, I know. And as his student, I would often ask him, you know, how is it possible that you think we could have a, a useful discussion about this book that you assigned last week, you know, next week, um, when you've assigned 10 of them? And uh, he, he would joke with me, and I, I think he wasn't joking, and he would say, Louis, just, just the fact that that bed is by your, by your nightstand, or that it's in your um, backpack, or that it's on my list of things to talk about, you're going to think about it. And you may not have read it all, but you'll re read a lot of it, or, or pieces of it, or the best parts. Um, and so I try and read uh, a lot of uh, books so that I stay abreast of uh, what goes on. <laughs> Okay. Are there any quotes that you think of often or live your life by? I have learned that in the past uh, few years that I need to be very intentional about the time that I spend, who I spend it with, because it is becoming more and more uh, rare. And um, one of the, the people who I think has developed into a fabulous writer is, is Ray Dalio, who um, was a prolific investor, and or I shouldn't say was, still is, at Bridgewater, and he's become uh, a writer. Um, and he wrote a book called Principles uh, several years ago that kind of was his first foray. And then more recently, he wrote a book, the name of which is escaping me, about um, the history of uh, world and economic powers. Yeah, the changing world order. The changing world order. There you go. But uh, his quote in, in Principles that really st struck with me was, Think for yourself to decide, one, what you want, two, what's true, and three, what you should do to achieve number one in light of number two. 
And so I've really decided that I'm going to spend you know more time with the people I like and that um, really make me better and less time chasing people that uh, or chasing opportunities that are further out. That's fantastic. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Um, I love to garden. Mm. And so again, um, in the last few years, I've, I've, as we're all kind of stuck in this kind of strange circumstance, spending too much time at home or on zoom, which continues, uh, I, I, um, I find it comforting to be able to plant something in the ground and watch it grow slowly, uh, over time. Uh, and, and, uh, I find that it, it's comforting that to see the speed of time slowed down uh, in, in my day-to-day, and perhaps you're not different, Evan, uh, things go so fast. Yeah, no, love it. Uh, that's a great one. Uh, finally, which living person do you most admire? Um, you know, I would have given you a different answer at, at, at a different time in my life, uh, but my, my mother recently passed away from pancreatic cancer, Um, and I'm going to make a correction. Um, she passed away after having beaten pancreatic cancer for seven years and, um, really life surprises you, um, in, in what's right next to you that you don't necessarily see or appreciate or assess in the right way. And so my mother, Evan was, um, never said the wrong thing. Unlike me, um, she, she would, uh, she always brought her best to the occasion was, was very understated And, and I, I think I didn't see her as for, for as powerful a person as she was. Um, and I always thought that it was my father who, who gave me this, um, indomitable spirit to keep, to keep getting up again when I got knocked down. And as I watched my mother in the last year, I realized, uh, just how strong and powerful a woman she was that no matter what the doctor said, her stage of, of, of illness was no matter the 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 treatment of chemo medicine that she had to be on or the experimental drugs that that she tried um she woke up every morning and she thought about what she wanted to do that day and what she wanted to eat and she lived her life one day at a time and she would not uh accept death mm. and and so um it was actually a stroke uh that that felled her earlier this year and since then i i've been really processing just what a lesson that that was for me that that my 77 year old mother um would not be felled by the worst news uh that you could get and and would live with uh, a, a deadly disease for seven years and beat it so mm. louis thank you so much for all your time your thoughts on governance and life in general and other issues uh and, and your personal outlook on things and Certainly how people have changed during the pandemic is, is a big deal for everyone. And we're all going through different issues depending on, on you know, what is uh, your state in life. So thanks again for uh, doing this and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.